I shared that I've, pre- I've preached lots of sermons on Christmas, the Christmas theme. I've done it over the months of December, so I have a whole stack of December sermons. But I wanted to move away from that. I wanted to somehow capture our imagination. So I began with the question last week, why do we need Christmas? And then I mockingly said, of course, the merchants need Christmas because they want to end their year in in the black. And we all chuckled at that. Of course, we recognize that, you know, we kind of get locked into a certain way of life, a, a paradigm, a way of thinking, a way of doing things in our culture. But then I talked about the reason why we need Christmas is because of something that happened a long time ago. Our first parents were in an amazing estate. They were in a garden. And they were in a place of absolute innocence. They knew God. They were without sin. They had, there was no suffering, no pain, no sorrow, no misunderstanding, no alienation, no difficulty in their life. They have a Christmas party for the youth, the children. So he, he, he needed his guitar. So I shared last week the story of when the serpent comes. And I brought out the idea, because some of you may not have been here, but I'll just bring you quickly up to speed so you'll feel like you're just a part of this part two of the series I'm doing. The serpent came, and as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there's a very undeveloped understanding of who Satan or the accuser of the brother or the adversary of the human race is. We know him as the devil. Very underdeveloped understanding from the Old Testament. But when we move to the New Testament, we have a greater understanding. We see Jesus, a spiritual realm. We see him defeating demonic powers. We uh, read from the book of Revelation. The serpent now is revealed to us as, you know, Satan himself in the book of Revelation, which is the serpent we read about in Genesis chapter 3. So we talked about that last week. We talked about temptation, how it comes, why we sin. Some of us go, I didn't need an explanation of why I sin. I just sin, you know, pastor. That's part of, part of the human equation. You know, we have a sin nature. And if we're not careful, we can yield to that. But I want to move on this week to the rest of the story. You know, how many of like Paul Harvey, you know, he gives you the rest of the story. I like that. And I want to hear the rest of the story. And so today we're going to talk about when God comes and the difference that makes. I love this a 19th century Danish theologian. His name is Soren Kierkegaard. He tells the story of an amazing king. The king like no other king. He said every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him. For he had the strength to crush all his opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. And he says here, how could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness tied his hands. And if he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist, for no one dared resist him. But the question remained in his mind, would she love him? She would say, of course she did, but would she truly? Or would she live with him and fear nursing a private grief for a life she had left behind? Would she be happy by his side? And how could he deeply know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his rural carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden, 
and to let love cross over the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal, concluded Kierkegaard. The king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. And so he clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito, in disguise, with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him. And yet, for him, it was not a mere disguise, but a new identity he was now taking on. For he had now renounced the throne to win her hand. Now, that's a parable by Kierkegaard. I don't think that's exactly what happened, but the Apostle Paul gives us a little insight into what happened that first Christmas morning. And it goes like this in the book of Philippians. Who being in very nature God, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, oh, by the way, if you're in nature God, you are God. He's the same as the Father. He's the same in essence. It says something, and he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, he was human. But why Paul writes being made in human likeness? Because there was one distinct feature about Jesus that was different than us. He was without sin. He had a sinless nature. It says, In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You may be wondering, okay, well, what are we really getting at here, Pastor? What's really going on in the story? What, what, what is this all about? How does this relate to Christmas? Well, if you understand that as a human family, we've all sinned against God. The Bible says it very clearly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all are dealing with that in our lives. And the fact that we've sinned, we've allowed death and suffering and alienation and broken relationships to be just right around us everywhere. And all of us have experienced this nature of sin impacting our lives in the, you know, to varying degrees. You can have disease. That's, a, that's, a, that's part of the, the equation. When evil came into the world, when rebellion came into the world, there was no disease. But now we're confronted with disease. Now we're confronted with dying. Now we're confronted with loss and suffering and sorrow. We're confronted with guilt and shame. We could just go on. We could talk about all the broken relationships. And that's kind of what happens when we allow sin to rule and reign in our life. But God is interested in changing that equation. And that's what I want to talk about from Genesis chapter 3. Because as we keep reading the rest of the story, God comes to the garden. And that's the part that I think is so powerful. So I want to look today at how God comes and begins to repair what humanity has destroyed. How you and I cannot fix our problems. And that's, that's something we need to understand. We, we, we tend to want to fix things. How many here you can say, yeah, I'm a fixer. I like, I like things to be tidy. I like things to be repaired. I want relationships to be restored. I want them to be fixed. And what I'm going to say to you today is, so often when we try to do it, it only creates more of a mess. Isn't that true? We just make things worse. You know, so we're going to take a look at how God went about fixing the problem. So I want to look at these things. Uh, three things we need to consider when God comes to us. And the first one is simply, he comes to us in grace. I love that word grace. 
Grace is the idea of God's favor that you and I don't earn. Isn't that nice? How many like gifts? Anybody enjoy getting gifts? Anybody like getting something for nothing? That's a gift, right? Well, that's what grace is. Grace and gift are the same, basically the same Greek word. It's got, you know, the same root Greek word is gift and grace. It's the word charis or charisma. And when God comes to us, he offers us grace. I like that. Um, The key in restoration and relationships is the spirit and tone in which we have to relate to each other. How many know that that's really a key if we're going to repair broken relationships? Now, I want you to notice how God came to man, to Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, he, he actually comes quite gently and very graciously to this couple now hiding. Now, how many know God sees everything? As a matter of fact, I would argue that God was actually present when the serpent came. He was watching all of this play out. And you know, a lot of times, how many are parents? You know, you you see your kids making a choice and you go, not a good decision, you know? But you can't always be there to rescue them from every choice and every decision. We have to learn, you know, from our decisions and that there's consequences to decisions. And so God comes to Adam and Eve now, and as we're going to see, he does not come in anger. He doesn't come, you know, he just, he, he doesn't, you know, I wrote down, he doesn't stop them from doing the wrong thing. I think that's fascinating. How many here, you know, you think, well, we should stop people from doing bad things. I'm going, well, God doesn't. Anybody thought about that? God is not running around on this planet you know, like a harried person, full of anxiety, you know, trying to stop every bad thing that's ever going to happen on the planet. See, that's, that's a picture some people have of God. I think God is not doing that at all. I think God is allowing hum, human beings to make decisions because he's created us in his image. You know, we're informed. A lot of times we're informed of what's right, what's wrong. He invites them to acknowledge that they've done wrong. And well, that's the hardest thing in the world in our lives is to admit we're wrong. You know, anybody have a problem with that? Acknowledging when you're wrong? You know, kind of a struggle sometimes, you know? I mean, our culture today is having a problem with it because I think we've developed this whole blaming thing to a whole new level. You know, we want to justify living with bad choices in life. You know, we want to justify... Uh, what's really going on in their life. And so the, the, the people who are victimizing others now tell us they're the victims. And we see that all the time. So let's pick up the story in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Then the man and the woman, now they recognize that they were naked. They'd always been naked, but they hadn't figured, you know, they didn't know that. They now, you know, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I had somebody email me this week, and I emailed them back, you know, Evil was already present in the, in the universe before man fell into sin. You need to understand that. It was already... We did not create evil, okay? Human, humanity didn't create evil. Evil was there, you know, it was already developed. You know, there was a tempter in the garden. And so God comes to them. They're hiding It says, and the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God 
as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Wow. Notice, you know, God didn't come rush. You know, sometimes as parents, you know, our kids do the wrong thing. We come running and screaming when they're little. Anybody relate to this? You know, what do you think you're doing? That's not how God comes to Adam and Eve. He comes back as if nothing has happened. He's now trying to, you know, help them understand that they've done something they shouldn't have done. I love the way Dr. Walke frames this incident. The gardener has not abandoned his garden. The proof of love is the unwillingness to abandon the object of love even when love fails to achieve its desired end. In other words, if you truly love someone, you don't just give up on them. You don't. You know, have to forgive people, you know. We're in a culture today, you know, we're so used to discarding things. You know what I mean? This is the, this is the throwaway generation. That's not working, you know? And, and we do that with people. That's not working out, you know? We don't really work at relationships today. We don't work through the challenges and the difficulties that they present to us. Can I just say this? Everyone in this room, as nice as you guys look today, given the right context, you could mess up. And so could I. Let's be realistic. Come on now. Isn't that, am I telling you the truth? If you don't think this is the truth, let me, let me give you an Old Testament text. It's a shocking text. God says, you know what I'm going to do to you Israelites? You've been so rebellious. I've been warning you for so long. I'm going to let you become, uh, your city's going to be under siege. You're going to have a starvation. And you guys are going to, be in such a dire strait that the most sensitive heart, the most sensitive mother will eat her, own, eat her own child. So before we, you know, act like, oh, we're so great, given the right context, it's amazing what human beings can go down to. It is really sad, you know. And all I'm trying to say to us is before we start throwing rocks at each other, maybe we need to stop doing that and take a look at how God goes about trying to restore broken relationships. James Boyce says the problem was not in the voice, of course, for the voice of God was gentle and filled with love. God sometimes speaks in judgment and then the voice is terrifying, but his, this was not the case in Eden. Everything in God's manner was as before. He was walking, not running. I can just see a parent running in and screaming at kids right in that scene. Can you guys, can you guys imagine this? You know, kids really doing something stupid, you know, like pouring paint on the carpet. I don't know. What do you think you're doing? See, I have an imagination, you know. No, he was walking, not running. He arrived in the cool of the day, the most pleasant time, rather than the heat of the afternoon or the dark of the night. And how many know in the dark of the night, that's when all the boogeymen come out, right? Everybody's afraid at night. So he didn't come at night. He came in the, in the, in the, in the day. He did not come suddenly. He came by degree. In other words, he was calling as he came. No, it was not the voice or manner of God's coming that was terrifying uh, to Adam and to Eve. Okay. So, it was the fact that they had sinned. And when one has sinned against God, even the tenderest of voices can be frightening. 
How many know that when you know you're in the wrong, you're not a very strong person? You know, how many know this? When you're, when, you're, when you're in the right, you feel courageous. When you're in the wrong, you feel like a coward. Anybody relate to that? You feel what I'm saying? These guys knew they were wrong. And so when God came, they were like ashamed. They were fearful. They were hiding, you know. But the Lord God called to the man. Now, where are you? Now, I, I, you know, how many know this is... You have, to, you have to understand the story. This is a narrative passage trying to give you an understanding. Don't you think God knew where he was? Theologically, of course God knew where Adam was. But it's an invitation for Adam to respond to God. Where are you? And God does that to us in our lives. You know, it's a powerful statement. You know, think about it. You know, we hear this voice. God could be saying to you today, where are you? Where are you in your life? What are you doing right now with your life? How are you living your life? See, God wants to come and speak to us. Always comes, you know, gently, inviting us to dialogue with him, to participate in a conversation with him, to be open and transparent with Almighty God. Because, folks, when you and I, there's only two responses. We either open our souls up and acknowledge where we're at, and we acknowledge our fears, our failures, our sin, our brokenness. And you know, God can begin to do something in our lives, or we can pretend it doesn't exist. We can live in denial. We can blame other people. We're going to see what happens here. These guys start blaming real fast. They don't want to take responsibility for what's going on here. God asks a question to draw them out. He does not come as an accuser. That's interesting. You know, sometimes when we come to people, we come with accusation. Who's the accuser? Satan. God still comes in gentleness and grace. That's how he's coming to us today. And, you know, we have to come to people like that. It's challenging, isn't it? To be like God, we have to approach people like God does. Wouldn't you say that would be true? You know, as Paul Paul writes to the church, he says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And oh, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but everybody that's a believer is a spiritual person. The Spirit is at work in you. But we have to come to people in a gentle manner. And we have to watch ourselves. Because so often when we are, you know, ready to unload and get upset with a person, we are just as susceptible to what's happening in their life as they have fallen in that situation. So it's easy to judge people. But you know, one of the things that goes on in my mind, and I've been at this a long time, I always say to myself, now if somebody has to come to me and correct me, how, they, how, does, how would I like to receive it? So I better start practicing that myself to others, you know, and it's work. You know, Gary Thomas, in his book, Sacred Influence, he tells a story of a couple, and they're named Ken and Diana, fictitious names. Anyways, Ken came to Diana one day and saying that he cared for her, but he didn't love her anymore. This is a conversation that people have had. Believe me, this goes on a lot more than we realize. And the timing of that announcement could not have been anything worse than what it was because they had a teenage daughter and the daughter was struggling. And uh, that just intensified the, the whole problem that was going on in their relationship. They had shared the same house, but they had emotionally drifted apart. You know, and that, does that happen in relationships? Oh, yeah, people become disconnected emotionally. They're not working at building that bridge in their relationship. And so 
it, it, this crisis was actually causing Diana, the wife, to actually draw near to God. She, she had kind of drifted. Obviously, they had both drifted. But Diana realized, you know what? I need God at this moment. This is a crisis moment. And then the phone call came. Do you know what your husband's doing with my daughter? See, Ken had developed an internet relationship around a mutual interest and was planning on meeting this other woman who was also married and had children. And that's when Diana took action that both she and Ken later said saved their marriage. And this is what she did. Very interesting. She drove to a very close friend and exploded to her friend. She shared all of her anger, all of her frustration, all of that stuff, okay? So, you know, the Bible says be angry, but don't sin. This was probably a wise decision on her part. She went and unloaded and got a lot of that junk out. And then she decided, okay, now I've got to confront my husband. And because she had made that, she, she now had gotten rid of a lot of that angst and anger inside of her, she decided, I'm going to approach him a little differently than that. So she drove up to the house and she said to her husband, listen, we need to talk. And he said, why? And she gave him the name of his chat room friend and his face turned white. With remarkable detachment, without accusation and fiery emotion, they sat down and they chatted. Finally, he began to see the ridiculousness of the nature of the situation. And she, you know what? Was able to walk through this thing. There was a little bit of a comic air about it, you know, not letting him off the hook, but being gracious enough. Not once did she swear or call any of the names that she had told her friend that she felt toward him. And later, her husband said, if my wife had come home and reacted the way he did, as he later found out as she treated her, like she went and exploded over there, he said, if she would have done that to me, he said, I would have left. Because in his mind, that would have justified what he was doing. But the fact that she literally was able to get herself under control before dealing with the problem was they were able to salvage their relationship. And by the way, you know, folks, that's so important to do. You know, a lot of people, and, you know, I, maybe I've been doing this so long, but I, I, I realize a lot of people think, well, you know, I'll just trade in this model for that model. And I'm going to just tell you right now, new sets of problems. It's all you're trading in is a new set of problems. You know, and I, and I want to say that because as much as we can, I, I'm, I, you know, I know some of you go, yeah, I've tried. I mean, somebody, my husband cheated on me and my wife ran off on me. I understand. Those are situations you can't control. I understand it takes two people to make a marriage work. But what am I trying to get across today? If we will try to treat each other with dignity, with gentleness, with grace, we'll probably have better relationships with each other. Okay? Let me move on. We need to come to people in grace. That's the point, and that's how God comes to us. Second thing we need to consider when God comes to us is that he comes to us in justice. Okay, so what is justice? Webster says, justice is the use of authority to uphold what is right and just or lawful. And what we need to know is simply this, that we're accountable to our creator. We are all going to stand before God. Even the people that don't believe in God, it's going to really shake them up. I just tell you that right now. They're going to be a little shook up when they go, I never believed in you. Yeah, well, I still exist. You know, it's like telling, you know, somebody's blind and they can't see doesn't mean that what what's out there is not real. 
It's just that they're blind. So God is going to have us, we're going to stand before God. We're all morally accountable to God. And the Bible says that, you know, that he will judge us for our sins. And if we don't address them today, if we don't address them in this hour, this lifetime, this moment of our lives, this earthly pilgrimage, we're going to have to stand before Almighty God. You know, we got to deal with sin. Sin has to be addressed. And we either address it in the way God's made a provision for us by Christ dying on the cross, and we accept the fact that Jesus died as a substitution for our sin, or else we stand before Almighty God with no substitute. And at that moment, you can make all the excuses in the world, but you know, the Bible says that men and women are without excuse. We're all standing without excuse. Because, you know, all the things, I've heard so many excuses in my day, but it's really interesting to me, you know, think about what, what has God done that's been evil towards you? You can say, well, somebody in the church did this, or some leader did that, or, you know, something happened over here. But at the end of the day, you and I have to give an account for our behavior. You know, I can't control what people do to me. I can only control how I respond to what people do to me. That's the only thing I can control. That's the same of you. It says here, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. We're not going to have 15 lifetimes to get this straight. We have one life. And it's quickly passing, believe you, me. It goes by quickly. Paul says this to the Romans, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. For it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You go, wow, this is a little bit of a sober message for Christmas morning. Well, you don't understand the gift unless you understand what's really going on. Why do I need Christmas? Because I'm a sinner. That's why I need Christmas. You know, I need God to come in grace. And if I don't receive that grace, what I will be faced with is the judgment for my sins. See, nobody is really getting off doing what they're doing. And I keep saying this to people. Yeah, but they're getting away with it. No, they're not. Well, they're getting away with it now. Yes, they might be getting away with it now. They might even get away with it in this entire earthly life. But there'll be one day where they stand before God and they will be accountable. And you and I need to know that. So don't hide behind, well, life isn't fair and all the other things we come up with. Frederick Bruner said it so well. Romantic love is blind to everything except what is lovable and lovely. But Christ's love sees us with terrible clarity and sees us whole. Christ's love so wishes our joy that it's ruthless against everything in us that diminishes our joy. And so what diminishes our joy? But the sin within our lives. So what God is going to do is work on those sin issues in our soul. The worst sentence love can pass is that we behold the suffering which love has endured for our sake, and that is also our acquittal. The justice and mercy of the judge are ultimately one. You know, it's really amazing to think about how much God loves us. God loves us so much that he took our sin upon himself. God loves us so much you know, that he wants to deal with our problem. And he's the only one that can. You and I can't fix it. Adam and Eve, what did they do to try to fix their problem? Well, their answer was to actually, you know, try to hide from God's presence rather than confront the issue of sin in their lives. And, he, and then, you know, so Adam says, well, we were hiding from you. <laughs> 
Why were you hiding from me? Well, we were naked. How do you know you're naked? Well, it must have ate of the wrong fruit, right? And it says here, and he said, who told you that you were naked? How do you know this stuff? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? How many know most of us hate confrontation? Anybody here really enjoy confrontation? Or would you rather avoid that? Yeah, we don't like that stuff, you know? And it says to make matters, you know, worse... If we don't address these issues, they don't go away. That's the problem. Then we see the real consequence of sin. It always brings guilt. Notice how they realized that they were naked. They hid from God. They had violated God's word, which is his will. Theologian Augustine Strong says this, that guilt is the objective result of sin. It is an offense against God, an act or state of opposition to his will, which has for its effect God's personal wrath. This guilt or obligation to satisfy the outraged holiness of God is explained in the New Testament by the term debtor or debt. And that's why when Jesus is teaching us to pray and where to pray, he says, listen, when you pray, this is how you should pray. Forgive us our debts, Luke says, our our trespasses, as we also forgive our debtors. In other words, this is a huge issue in our life. And, you know, we struggle with forgiveness big time. And there's a lot the Bible says about forgiveness. And I, I always say this to people. Think of it this way. When God is going to give you this grace, this gift, when he gives us forgiveness, what did you do to deserve, deserve his forgiveness? And the right answer is nothing. So what you're getting is a gift, you and I, we're getting the gift we don't deserve, right? Right? So when I, when I have to forgive someone, I have to remind myself, I'm giving this person a gift they don't deserve. And so many of us, when someone sins against us, what are we waiting for? If they'll just admit they're wrong, or if they'll just apologize for what they did, right? We're waiting for them to somehow do something to merit forgiveness. And folks, that's an opposite way of thinking. You and I need to think like God does and grant the gift people don't deserve. You say, why do I need to do that? Because then you can be free from carrying the baggage of the hurt and the anger and the violation that has happened to you. And some of us walk around with all this baggage inside of us because we're unforgiving. And you know who suffers? We do. We become imprisoned in our own anger, hurt, and bitterness. And God wants to set us free. He wants to set us free from our own sin and also from the sin that people have done to us. And one of the keys is that we receive Christ's forgiveness. And secondly, we give forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. Not only does it sin bring guilt, but it also brings condemnation. You know, the Bible says that when we come to Christ, I was chatting with someone the other day and I had to say to them, listen. This person was living a life under condemnation. And, you know, some of you are hard on yourself, and you just walk around condemning yourself all the time. I want to give you the good news. If you're in Christ, you have no condemnation. All of the stuff that you focus in on. You know, here's our our biggest problem. We tend to focus in on ourselves. And we focus in on our our weaknesses and our sinfulness. And some of us, we, we start living that mindset. And here's the good news. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you give your life to Christ, there's no condemnation. 
God has completely forgiven you for all of your sins. Now you can go and live in a new freedom. Not to go out and sin more, but to be free from the thing that has brought you down. You can be free from the sin in your life. That's what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery. He said, I don't condemn you, but go and don't sin anymore. In other words, be free from what brought you down. What a powerful thing that really is. Well, let me move on. I'm going to skip over some stuff here. Third point, simply when God comes, he comes in goodness. I love this. He comes in grace, but let's not be foolish. He also will judge us for our sins. He'll come in justice. So we have to address our wrongs. We have to acknowledge we've wronged. We can't pretend we didn't do it. You know, we have to own up. You know, the hardest thing in the world I had to learn as a young person was to face my problems because I had good track shoes. I thought I could run away from my problems. But you know what I discovered very early in my teenage life and young adulthood? You can't run fast enough. And the more you run, the bigger the problems build. How many notice that? You never get away from them. They just keep intensifying. And I learned very early the best way to deal with a problem was to face it. Face it head on and, and just, you know, admit where I'd gone wrong and stop pretending and just address it. And when I did that, I found that the problems began to diminish in their intensity, scope, and power. And that's the power of, you know, acknowledging these things. But now God comes in goodness. After their failure, God could have said, well, okay, scrap the human race. I'll just create, you know, I'll create new, a new race of aliens. I'll go to another planet, you know. That's how our world thinks, you know. There's aliens and other planets, you know. But God didn't do that. He did not do that. We all have sin. It's part of the human race. So here we see God showing us how he's going to go about addressing the issue. And the first thing God did was he makes a provision for our sins. He says, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He's talking to the serpent. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And here is the first promise of scripture of a coming savior to address the sin issue. This is, many people believe this is the first indication that God had a plan all along. You say, because God knew. We're not going to go into what God knows and why God allows and all the rest of it. But God knew. And secondly, God tempered the judgment with mercy. He clothed their nakedness. He, and how many know if you take an animal, to get animal skins, what do you got to do? You got to take the life of an animal. Many people believe this was the beginning of a sacrificial system. See, if the wage of sin is death, which the Bible teaches it is, and when we think of death, you know, we think of, you know, physical death. But I'm talking here also about emotional death, relational death. You know, there's a death that's, that, you know, an alienation that comes in. Listen, the moment you and I sin, do you realize we, at that moment, we're alienated from God? We're cut off from God. And, you know, often our sin, if it's not addressed, it ends up affecting the people around us. And how many relationships have come to an end? That's a death, too. You know, I've talked to people. You know, divorce sometimes is harder than death itself. That's the same degree of intensity and, and struggle. But here, instead of a person being buried... You know, you have a person walking around, but your, your relationship is gone. That's a death. And so we have this realm of death going on here. And God, you know, takes an animal. And so he creates this idea of a substitutionary uh, death. So Adam and Eve can go on living. He 
you know, there's an animal slain. And, you know, you thought about all the animals that were slain in the Old Testament. Man, I was reading once that they had something like 255,000 lambs slain in one Passover festival in Jerusalem. I bet you those lambs are pretty happy that Jesus came, you know. (laughs) Man, I tell you, that's a lot of lambs, you know, losing their lives, right, for the sins of humanity. So God makes a provision to terminate our eternal condition. Um, Now, redemption is not only promised in word, but it's pictured. Man attempted to cover shame by leaves of the fig tree, but this was far too slight a covering for so deep a shame. I'm quoting uh, one of the writers here, one of the theologians. He says, The mention of skin suggests the fact and necessity of the death of the animal before they could be used as clothing, and in more than probable is this fact the the very beginning uh, of the revelation of sacrifice. Let me move on. So God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. God made a provision to terminate this eternal condition. James Boyce said, if Adam and Eve had been allowed to live forever, they would have lived as sinners. In other words, if God would have said, oh, just forget it. You can still keep eating from the tree of life. You know what would have happened? This whole planet would be a terrible place to live. We would have just degenerated. We'd be living forever with people sinning at deeper levels all along. Because, you know, we're actually moving in one of two directions. We're actually moving towards God or away from God. We're actually, God is actually changing us and we're becoming hopefully better or we're moving away from God and we're degenerating as human beings. And so God finally, you know, when we read the book of Genesis, they had these huge lifespans. God says, I just can't handle having these guys live seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years. Man, these guys, all they think about is evil. And then we read the story of the flood. So we have a sense that left to ourselves, we're in big time trouble. We're just going to degenerate down. We're going to, you know, be the most miserable people going. And then the Bible says here in Genesis 3.22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim. That's an angel, by the way. And a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. But here's what I want you to know. This is so exciting to me. You and I have been eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all of our lives. But the day we come to Jesus, we start eating from the tree of life. The day we give our life to Jesus, we take on eternal life. Listen to what happens. God in Christ addresses the consequences of our sin. In Romans 8, we read of the great reversal to sin and its consequences. And you know, I don't know about you, but this is probably one of the most phenomenal chapters in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 8. If you've never read it, read it. It it is so inspiring. And then you get to the end of the chapter, and it's just powerful. Let me just close with these thoughts. In Christ, the issue of guilt is addressed. You know, a lot of people live, you know, trying to deal with guilt, suppressing guilt. You know, we're medicating for guilt. We're, you know, a lot of things are going on. You know, we, we, we always don't understand what's really happening. We don't understand the, the power of the mind. We don't understand the psychological power of what guilt really does inside of us. 
So we're trying to figure out, why, do, why can't I sleep at night? Why am I, you know, all these things that are going on, this depression. Sometimes a lot of these things are all driven by this sense of guilt we're experiencing. But listen to what happens when we become, become a Christian. In Christ, the issue of guilt is addressed. And I love this verse in Romans 8.33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. What does that really mean? It just means simply this. That when you and I experience forgiveness from God, even if the devil himself comes before the throne of God and accuses us, God stands up to him and says, you know what? Their sin has been dealt with. And, I, <clears throat> and one of the beautiful characters in the Chinese language is this word for righteousness. And you know what it is? And I've said it many times. It's a lamb drawn over a man. And so when God looks at you and me, he doesn't see the man anymore, or the woman anymore. What he's looking at is the lamb between himself and us. And what that lamb is, is really the life of Jesus that was shed for us. So God sees the sacrifice, and he sees now you and I standing in the perfect right relationship with him because he sees us as he sees his son Jesus. Now that's a very powerful thought. To be able to stand before Almighty God, and when God looks at me on this final day, when I stand morally accountable to God, he's not going to look at me. He's going to look at the Christ that's living inside of me. Hallelujah. And that's the hope that we have. Because can you imagine standing in the presence of a holy God on your own? Forget it. You know, you want to talk about the most terrifying experience in the world? That's the most terrifying experience. To stand in the presence of a holy God and know that you are absolutely filthy in his sight. That will be a very terrifying moment. I'm being honest with you. And I don't think we, we really fully grasp this stuff. But then when you think about what happens when you and I come to Jesus... He says, no longer are we living in this condemnation anymore. He says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. He says, now therefore there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I love the, the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is actually a sermon, if you don't know that. That's the literary genre of it. And he says this in the book of Hebrews. He says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In other words, every year, read the Old Testament, every year they came and made a sacrifice for their sin. But what he's telling us here in this book is that this never made people perfect because they had to keep repeating these sacrifices. Are you catching on? That means there's a necessity. If you have to keep doing it, it means there's a necessity to keep doing it. That means that we keep sinning. But listen to what happens. If it could, they would, not have would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. But now at the end of the age, Jesus Christ died for our sins. He doesn't have to keep offering himself up because his sacrifice removes our guilt. Wow. And you know what? If you and I would experience this, this is so profound, folks, it would actually give you great mental health. I'm serious. You know, my, 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 my thing is simply this. We should be preaching the gospel because 
When people fully grasp the good news about Jesus Christ, it will set you free from all guilt and shame. You will no longer live in condemnation. You will walk in freedom. Not a freedom to go out and sin, a freedom to go out and love. Hallelujah. What an amazing thing. In Christ, the issue of condemnation is addressed. Um, It says, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Listen, when someone is condemning you, I just say to myself, oh yeah, but listen, Jesus is praying for me. So condemn all you want. Jesus is praying. He's standing. He says, listen, I died for that wretch. You may think I'm a wretch, but Jesus is pointing out to you guys, I died for that wretch. Are we catching on? So we better be careful what we're saying about people because you may find yourself accusing someone God is praying for. It's just a thought. I like that thought. (laughs) Uh, And listen to this one. The issue of separation is addressed or alienation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No one, all of these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can you not love chapter 8? I just love that verse. I just go, guys, think about this. You can have people blasted away. You can have all kinds of things. You can have every demon in hell rattling in your face, you know. You just go, but I'm standing in the love of God. I'm standing in the grace of God. I'm standing in the goodness of God. So when the serpent comes, yes, he can tempt us. But as I said, he only has power if we succumb to that temptation. But when God comes... He comes in grace. When God comes, yes, he comes in justice. He will deal with all inequity, all sin, and all inequality. God's going to deal with all that stuff. We better make sure we've dealt with our sin by surrendering to Christ. And finally, when God comes, he comes in goodness. How many just say, wow, I really like it when God shows up. You know, you know, but he's here. He's here with us right now. You know, we can, you know, Christmas, we can go home and we can eat nice meals and visit with great people. But just think about the one who loves you above everybody else. And this is the part I love. God so loves us. God so loves us that he died for us. Tell me, how many of you in this room would be willing to die for someone you loved? Maybe, maybe not. How many would be willing to die for your enemy? Forget it, right? (laughs) But the Bible says, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were estranged from God, while we were his enemy, while we were rebels, Jesus died for us. Let's stand this morning. Well, that's a very unorthodox Christmas message. But you know what? I want you to think. I want you to think today. I want you to think about what I'm saying. It's not just about a baby born in a manger. That was something that happened and planned 
you know, that, that was planned so long ago because God knew we were going to mess up. And God made the ultimate provision. So, you know, some of you, I want to just say this to you. If you're not trusting Christ, you're operating in fig leaves. You know, I'm not interested in my fig leaves. I know they're inadequate. And I'm serious about this. A lot of human beings, we're, we're very self-sufficient and self-reliant. But all the things we're trying to do to fix ourselves and fix other people are insufficient. You're, I hate to tell you this, you're inadequate. The problem is so deep, you and I can't reach it. Because we're broken ourselves. And until we get honest enough with ourselves to say, you know what, I'm messed up too. It's pretty hard to be straightening other people out when I'm messed up. Right? Let's be honest. I want to meet a person who's never sinned. There's nobody in the room that qualifies except Jesus. The one who never sinned died for you and me. So with every head bowed here this morning, I'm going to close in prayer. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? God has been speaking to me, Pastor, and showing me that I actually need him today. That what, I've, what I'm offering God is going to be inadequate. Just think about that moment at the end of your life. And we're all going to get there. We're all going to get there at that moment. We're all moving towards that moment. We're all going to stand before God. How do, you want to, how do you want to see yourself standing before God? I'm saying, I don't want fig leaves. I want to say today, I've put my full trust in what Jesus Christ did for me. Is that you today? How many here say, I want to put my full trust in what Christ did for me? Just raise your hand. That's you. Raise your hand. Yeah, bless you. That's my hands up. I want to put my full trust in what Christ has done for me. I'm not looking to myself. I'm looking to Christ. How many here today? You can put your hands down now. How many here today say, you know what? I want to do that. I want to put my full trust in Christ. Maybe I haven't done that, but I want to. And you know what? If you just say, God, I want to trust you completely, he's going to hear the cry of your heart. If that's you today, just raise your hand and we'll pray. God bless you. Yeah, many of you. Okay, it's good. Very good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for this beautiful day that you've granted to us. Thank you that you come to us in favor and grace. You come to us dealing with our brokenness, our rebellion, our sin. We could have talked about all the blaming they did, but Lord, we, that's what we do. We blame other people for why we are who we are. But the reality is, ultimately, we're going to stand before you and have to answer for our lives and the decisions we're making. And Lord, I just pray today that you will help us to put our full trust in your goodness and your grace and your sacrifice that we can live in freedom and not in failure. That we can live, Lord, apart from guilt and shame. That we can walk, Lord, a life serving and trusting in you. We just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.